Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Nina Lager-Vestberg, author of Picture Research, the work of intermediation from pre-photography to post-digitization. Picture Research was published by MIT Press in June 2023 and is available open access. Picture Research focuses on how pictures were saved, stored, and searched in a time before scanners, servers, and search engines, and describes the dramatic difference it made when images became scannable, searchable, and distributable distributable via the internet. While the camera, the darkroom, and the printed page are well-known sites of photographic production that have been replaced by cell phones, imaging software, and websites, the cultural intermediaries of mass circulation photography, picture librarians and researchers, editors, and archivists are less familiar. Drawing on documents and representations across a range of cultural expressions, picture research reveals the intermediation that has been performed by skilled workers in a variety of roles, making use of pre-photographic, photographic, and digital machineries of capture, accumulation, extraction, and transmission. Nina Lager-Vesberg is Professor of Visual Culture at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Nina, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Uh, So before we get started talking about your book, I would love if you could share a little bit with listeners about your background, where you grew up and went to university, and what brought you to your research in photography and photo libraries? Yeah, okay. So I grew up in Oslo, Norway, um, and I went to the UK, to London, more specifically to do um, a bachelor degree in film, video, and photographic arts at the University of Westminster. And at that time, I thought I was going to be a photographer, but I realized uh, during that time that that really wasn't for me. And then I decided instead that I wanted to try for a career as a picture editor or a photo editor, I think you'd say, in North America. Um, And I did some internships uh, at a picture library and a magazine. Um, And then cutting a long story short, (laughs) eventually got a permanent job um, on the picture desk of a Sunday newspaper in London. And then After a couple of years working there, I sort of felt that I wasn't quite done studying after all. Um, And I sort of ended up doing an MA degree in history of art at Birkbeck College um, at the University of London. And I was doing that part time in the evenings while I was working full time as a picture researcher. And and then I I was made redundant uh, two thirds of the way through my course then. um, And I was then rehired by the company that my job had been outsourced to. So um, as we may get onto later, I have a sort of um, a, a personal experience of the labor conditions in the picture research industry as well. <laughs> um, and then when I was, you know, I really got into my MA uh, and I decided that I really wanted to be an academic. Um, and so I went then on to get a fully funded grant um, to do a PhD at the same college and with the same supervisor. And while I was doing my PhD, um, I also carried on freelancing on the picture desk of another newspaper about one day a week for the first sort of 18 months of my PhD. Um, and then when my grant ran out, 
as it tends to do before you finished. Um, I went back there as a regular freelancer for a few days a week while I was finishing my thesis and and starting to look for postdoctoral positions. Um, and I guess throughout this period, I've been thinking about how the work I was doing as a picture researcher had changed, you know, because of how digital search and delivery services have been adopted since I started. I started doing it in the late 90s. Um, and then when I was getting towards like, yeah, I guess 2005, I was getting back into it and it had changed a lot in the meantime. Um, and it, basically, I'm one of those people who just thinks a lot about how work is being done, not just about what to do. <laughs> um, and so in the period after I submitted my thesis and I was waiting to defend it, um, I happened to watch the television drama Shooting the Past, uh, directed by Michael Polyakov, and which first came out in 1999, but hadn't seen it then. And it's set in an old-fashioned picture library, I mean, old-fashioned even by the 90s standard. And when I was watching it, I had a bit of an epiphany, I think. Um, it sort of served as a kind of catalyst for me to start thinking about the work of picture librarians who depicted in the show, but also myself as a picture researcher, um, as a potential research object. I guess it gave me a sort of distance. It gave me a lens to see my own work through in a way. And it also was a way of making the, that day job that I was doing as a picture researcher more feel more relevant to the academic research career that I eventually wanted to have. Um, and so I designed a research project about the impact of digitization on photo libraries and archives. And I applied for a postdoctoral fellowship uh, from the J. Paul Getty Foundation um, who generally awarded me a grant. Uh, and that was mainly to carry out a sort of oral history project and interviews with various professionals in the business about how they saw their work before and after digitization. So that was a kind of kernel <laughs> um, that started off this, the project that ended up in the book. Yeah, amazing. And um, so then I guess that that leads us to to talk more about the book, which digs into the work of intermediation between producers and consumers of pictures, and and shows how that's changed over time. Um, so you you clearly have this like personal interest in writing this book about the human side of photo archiving. But what were some of the other things that led you to this book, and what were your goals for this book? Well, I guess my initial goal, you know inspired by this experience of watching shooting the past was to kind of document and celebrate in a way a class of cultural workers whose really invisible work of intermediation was essential to the way visual culture in Europe and the US um, or North America developed um, in the 20th century and and in particular the specific skills that this work required and and that you developed by doing this work and I had this experience, I published an article, um, sort of early article from this project um, in 2008. And I got a phone call from a picture librarian who just had to tell me that this was the first time they'd read an academic article that they felt were about themselves. <laughs> you know, they felt they really sort of, and I felt I must be onto something here because it's not that often that academic researchers get kind of positive feedback from their research objects in a way, right? Um, so this kind of response really spurred me on um, and supported my belief that this this kind of work deserved to be recognized and represented in the scholarly literature on photography. And really on, you know, scholarly literature on photography has tended to focus on photographers and, and maybe the outlets that immediately cater to photographers like newspapers and magazines and stuff. Um, so I wanted to highlight more the, what I call the auxiliary trades of photography. Um, and as I was writing and rewriting the book, um, you know, the changes to the business really accelerated so much just in that period. Um, and that, um, affected my goals in, in some ways, uh, you know, during the writing of it, uh, because, well, I forget, for example, when I first started writing, I hadn't planned to take it as far back as the 1830s before the invention of photography. But I realized, you know, by the time I came to sort of finish up, uh, uh, you know, when we were about two decades into the 21st century, that readers would really need to get that much background in order to get their heads around how the picture industry came to be in the first place, you know, be and before they could even understand what it had been and what it has now become. They, you know, there needed to be this sort of 
a much longer, deeper history in a sense. Um, so, uh, I mean, like the goal has always been to to make visible, uh, invisible work that's taken for granted, um, and to sort of highlight both the work that pictures do in culture and society, but maybe even more the kinds of work that pictures make us do and the pictures are required to be done in a way uh, by various kinds of um, often unrecognized and unheralded um, workers. Yeah, definitely. And I love that, that anecdote of a picture librarian reaching out. I think it highlights that, you know, we often feel like there's a, a gap between um, uh, theory and practice for lack of a better distinction and, to bridge that gap and have a practitioner say like this, this research sees me is just, I mean, I feel like that's what we all hope for. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you noted going back to the 1830s, that was such a fascinating place to start for me as a reader. So in the first and second chapters, you set this stage for what becomes the photo industry, looking at pre-photographic context for intellectual property rights and the early establishment of best practices for, for picture libraries. Could you explain some of the factors then that shaped early picture libraries and what kind of work these spaces were doing and who was doing that work? Yes, sure. So um, just to give an overview, there were really three factors that together enabled the business model of the picture library. So one was the legal framework of copyright, which at least in UK law predated the invention of photography and which specifically tied the economic value of images to their ability to be produced, uh, reproduced, sorry. <laughs> and another um, factor was the medium of photography, which both simplified the making of copies and eventually the accumulation and storage of such copies in a kind of compressed and relatively transportable format. And the third important factor was the, the library as a kind of organizing principle, um, incorporating you know, cataloging practices, classification systems and finding tools, uh, which all made it possible to search and locate and extract pictures from the large collections amassed by photographic means. So these were kind of the three factors that had to be in place, like a legal thing a technology a technology and um you know a what do you call librarianship a practice a field of practice right <laughs> um information management practice um now printed reproduction has always required the collaboration of several people you had to have somebody to create the visual content as we call it now the original image somebody had to transfer that content onto a surface that could be then used for printing somebody had to run the printing press, and somebody had to distribute the resulting printed commodities. And the early copyright laws in the UK, which were collectively termed the Engravers Acts, were, were based on, and they kind of reflect, the name reflects it, that it was based on the principle that all these intermediaries between the original image created by an artist or draftsman and the public who viewed and bought popular prints, um, all these intermediaries were really the ones who added the most value to the resulting commodity, uh, you know, either by having specific skills or not least by having invested in tools and machinery for making reproductions. And so the, all these intermediaries were deserving of compensation and, and the, the kind of exploitable value in a picture was uh, dependent on, uh, on it existing in a format that could be reproduced and made into a commodity. And Photographers, for their part, they strove throughout the second half of the 19th century to have their rights as creators recognised in law. And this recognition was achieved gradually. Um, but for picture libraries, I guess the most significant piece of legislation was the 1956 Copyright Act in the UK, which granted photographs 50 years protection from the date of publication. And that was regardless of whether the photograph had been taken, uh, because it was really... Um, and it was regardless of that, and also regardless of whether it was an original photograph or a reproduction of another picture. And so that was useful for picture libraries, um, both those who specialised in reproductions of older works, so re-photographing old master uh, artworks, for example, works that were in the public domain, um, and who could then, and they can then claim copyright um, in the reproductions for 50 years from whenever they might be used in a publication. So not from the 
date that they took the picture, re-photographed the work, but actually from whenever it was first published, that photograph. And then it was also useful for the archives of newspapers, which I think in North America tend to be called the morgues, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite evocatively. Um, and so newspapers and periodicals who commissioned photographs for publication, um, they could then keep um, the overs, as we'd call them in the business, so the leftover photographs uh, from commissioned shoots, they could keep them on file and then exploit them for illustration purposes at a later date. I mean, they could, they could also resell the ones that had been used, but particularly these overs that hadn't been published before could, you know, have a much longer shelf life in a way because um, the copyright didn't start until they were first published. Um, and then, of course, there's one thing to have all these pictures and to have the right to exploit them. Um, but it's quite another thing to manage huge collections of pictures and, you know, find efficient ways of locating relevant pictures for whatever purpose um, who those who are willing to pay for them might need them. Uh, and so that's really where the skills and systems of archiving and librarianship come in um, to produce that kind of rather unique institution um, that a picture library is, or maybe we should say was. <laughs> um, and so those institutions, you know, were created to uh, serve different kinds of clients, audiences, um, usually from publishing, advertising, and the press. So people who needed uh, pictures to illustrate all kinds of concepts or events or objects or and people, um, and who quite often didn't, either couldn't or weren't able to, um, you know, or didn't want to uh, spend money on commissioning new photographs of them. Uh, and then they were often staffed by women uh, and particularly in sort of after the Second World War, um, picture librarianship uh, was really one area where uh, women could make a kind of quite good professional career in a sort of creative capacity. Um, and I think that was maybe, you know, I sort of go into that a bit in the book, um, that it was partly because um, it was seen to be a sort of clerical job. So you know, working in the archive or in the picture library was seen to be a sort of a filing job, you know, sort of um, the sort of thing that women, women's work in that sort of sense. But in fact, even though it did involve a lot of filing, <laughs> it was also quite creative, um, you know, because you had, you, you had to have a lot of general knowledge uh, and you learned a lot just from browsing the stacks and the files and looking at pictures and reading about them. And you had to kind of you had to know a lot of things, know where to start looking for something that might illustrate a concept um, and things like that. So um, that's another kind of characteristics of picture libraries, particularly in the, well, I think throughout the period when they were kind of big business, but um, but particularly in the sort of early, early decades after the Second World War. Yeah, that expertise that um, is developed by some of the, like, characters, I guess, that you describe who are working in these spaces. It's just astonishing um, the knowledge contained in individuals of exactly what is where. And I think that's something in the information professions we always deal with, like so much knowledge is in individuals and that can't be replicated. Like it can be replicated in different ways, but but they're different. Um, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, every person who works in, um, a, a, a any I guess any library or archive it doesn't have to be a picture one, but I think you know, maybe in particular in picture libraries uh, or picture archives um, develop their own sort of we might call it a psychogeography of um, of the space uh, and again coming back to this person who phoned me up to say they felt seen in my article um, you know they said that I can be on the phone to somebody who's who's asking me for something and I'll be just talking to them on the phone and I, I'll start browsing in the in the files. And before I know it, I, I've got a picture that is what they want. And I'm not entirely sure how I did that. It was just like they were talking to me and explaining. And I was kind of just drifting in the general direction where I felt there was a right picture. And it sounds <laughs> completely sort of mad. But it's I think it is often how um, people start inhabiting uh, those spaces. Uh and you know, and he'll probably have who he you know 
he would have a colleague then who would navigate in a completely different way and have other kinds of you know another kind of memory palace or whatever <laughs> uh constructed uh to to navigate uh, the same same library same archive yeah absolutely um that that resonates a lot with my experience um working in these spaces and um and i think it speaks to like the value that we see um of you know having having picture collections uh, so then moving on to your third chapter, who you focus on research, and we see a lot about intermediation here. So how the staff of picture libraries attempted to dictate good research, which was fascinating to me, um, good research practice, and, and they position themselves as these expert intermediaries. And you dive into the Picture Researcher's Handbook, which was produced by the Mary Evans Picture Library. How did you see the evolution of that handbook from the 1970s through the early 2000s as um, illustrating the transformation of picture libraries? Yeah, so I just point out that it was uh, the Picture Researchers Handbook was uh, was made by um, Hillary and Mary Evans, who ran the Mary Evans Picture Library, but it, it wasn't kind of produced. I mean, it wasn't the picture library that published it just sure. to yeah. be clear <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, that it definitely and they didn't talk that much about their own library in the, the books but obviously that's where a lot of their background comes from so this um handbook was published in eight editions between 1975 and 2006 and um it started out um it was conceived as a kind of travel guide uh, you know, it was supposed to be the equivalent of a travel guide. And and one of those travel guides is a bit sort of personal and subjective and gives you the kind of behind the scenes tips in addition to just the addresses and, and uh, the contact details. Um, and so the first handbook was also, and, and first handbook was that, but it was also um, a sort of how-to guide about what is picture research and how do you go about doing it and what do you need to think about if you want to do it and how do you contact people how do you address people in order to get them to do to do the work for you to do the search uh, for you for example um and so that was a quite a big uh, book <laughs> uh and then as the the editions went on um you know more and more space was given over to uh, just the contact details um, and there was less sort of information, but I guess presumably they thought that their audience by now knew how to do picture research. Um, you know, uh, there were more people doing it. They had trained one generation, and that generation probably trained the next generation, etc. Um, and then um, the, it also changes how, because it's a book, you know, it, um, it has to be. Again, there's this thing of how to how to find your way in the book as well, how to find the sort of address that you're interested in. And so it was an international guide, so it had to cover the whole world. I mean, or at least every picture library that the, the editors had heard about and had contact details and wanted to recommend in the world. And so it was kind of organised um, according to... Uh, to like continents uh, at the beginning and there was like one that was one way of organizing it and then there was other indexes that said this is for the subject and this is you know there was different so that you could uh, you could start and there were different kinds of ways that you could navigate the same book um now that changed later it became i mean at the end it's more like um you know a sort of printed out version of the internet <laughs> to be a bit blunt but like it was much more sort of keyword based you know uh, you could see that the, the way that we had started searching was from from having to think about okay how can I get hold of this picture nearby you know because that's what you had to do when you had to get the physical picture sent it was more like where can I get the best picture for this particular thing because I can get it digitally so it doesn't matter I can get it from Nepal if that's where the right picture is even though I need it in Oslo right um, so that was that was one of the ways that you can see the change. Um, and also in, in the details provided about the library. So to begin with, it was just the address, the street address, postal address, and, um, uh, you know, and phone number. And you were, you were advised to write beforehand and state what you wanted, and then maybe follow up with a call 
or go in person. It was That was, you know, stressed a lot that it, the best thing was to go in person and do the search in person yourself. Not just because you couldn't trust the people who weren't there to find the stuff you wanted, but also because that was a way of getting to know the collection in that way that we just talked about, like finding your own sort of getting a grip and like getting, getting an image in your head about what is it, the stuff that they have. You know, I know I'm looking for this kind of thing, but if I'm looking at that drawer where they have pictures of, I'm going to say Dachshunds, because that's the first thing that came into my mind, uh, maybe in the next drawer, because of whatever idiosyncratic classifying system they have, they also have pictures of food. And there's like a Dachshund sausage connection that somebody there had, you know, um, put in. And now I know that they also have a great food collection, um, which I wouldn't have found out otherwise, because I was looking for this pictures for the book about dogs right so that sort of um practice i mean they were very sort of encouraging of that sort of practice um in the earlier i mean now actually they were doing that throughout the time but uh, as as the time wore on it was more like okay we know you're doing it through a screen now (laughs) so you know we're not gonna tell you too much about um going straight to the libraries um but yeah so the advice on how to approach libraries and how to conduct searches and and you know uh, really, how yeah, the practicalities of how the work tell from the successive editions, how that changed. And also, because they wrote an introduction to all of the editions, uh, you can also see their own experiences and their thoughts and their, not least expectations for the business, change. Um, you know, sometimes they'll be like, in the early 1990s, thinking, oh, it must be a matter of time before we can get all the pictures electronically. And then next time they're like oh actually no it's the facts that's the thing that's really changed now you know and there's a there's a sort of um that they every time they kind of reflect on whatever new technology has happened since the last edition and how that's changed the business um and then eventually and then the in the final one they they kind of got to the point where they that they prophesied maybe 15 years earlier about instant electronic transmission of pictures but um um yeah that's uh it it is really interesting to see how like each edition has a sort of one new major technological event that's transformed the business since the last. Yeah, and that's what you mentioned about um, how some of their writing changed based on just what they knew about how people were doing research. I think is so interesting because it does highlight these issues of like changing user behavior in terms of how people rely on browsing physical collections or not. Um, it was amazing to you know, begin having access online to things, but it maybe put a damper on other behaviors that had had other benefits, like you mentioned, finding unexpected connections in drawers that are side by side. Yeah. And also meeting people and and, mm. and talking to the people who worked there, talk to people who knew the collection, you know, and one of the people I interviewed, uh, you know, said, oh, um, I miss the endless cups of tea. You know, I miss kind of and also uh, the, the same person actually I think said in a different kind of context well you know I was thin in those days because I was running around all the time so when I was younger and I was starting out I was running out all over London and I was having to go places and carry stuff all the time uh, and I was thin and now I just sit at home in my computer or I sit at a client's office and uh, you know uh, I don't go anywhere and I sit there and kind of complain about the slow broadband access or you know something like that that's that's what that's what the work is now you know yeah that's a that's a really like vivid example of the of the change um so then as digitization hit the scene what are the different ways that digital tools and possibilities were incorporated into these picture libraries and how did this shift the intermediation work that picture libraries had traditionally performed we've we've talked about that a little but i'm thinking specifically of some of the ideas you dig into in chapters five and six regarding shifts in what labor is being performed and by whom um so i was wondering if you could describe for listeners what kind of changes were happening and also what source material you found this in as you were doing your research yeah so um you know, one of the main things, I mean, this is something that happened really quite sort of overnight um, between sort of 2000, 2001 was that um, two very big platforms, um, Corbis Images and Getty Images, uh, kind of, they didn't take over the business, but they, they, they brought their online content to such a critical mass and the, and the search engine capabilities, um, you know, became 
I wouldn't say great or good, but kind of to, they were at that level where, you know, people found that, oh, actually, you know, I can do so much work just from my own desk now. Like it's much more efficient and they do have a lot because the platforms, these platforms, um, you know, acquired a lot of uh, niche, both niche picture libraries and uh, large collections that always been large general collections but they kind of acquired a lot of um all kinds of pictures so suddenly you didn't have to do um you know a sort of high street shopping trip going into every single specialist shop uh in order to get um photographs for a project you could just go into this one big superstore online superstore and find everything from your sort of artisanal bread to you know cheap i don't know detergent or something right um a picture equivalent of that. Um, and that really meant that everybody else had to do something. So a lot of people have been sitting back thinking, oh, you know, not maybe not this internet thing is going to blow over, but more like we can't afford to invest in digitizing uh, because it's really expensive. But a lot of them then had to do, they had to do something. They had to get online and they had to provide some sort of search and delivery and a lot of them were able to do that quite quickly because they did have really good uh, you know metadata already because they were libraries so mm-hmm. they had lots of information in text form a lot of them had already computerized their catalogs just like libraries did you know in the 1970s so they had lots of information about their images even if they didn't have that many images online but then they also had the images stored in convenient formats for for digitization so um 35 millimeter transparencies for example were quite quick to just scan low resolution um versions that you could then you can get a thumbnail up online without it costing too much uh and then then clients could kind of get an idea of okay what this picture is of something like that and then then they could happily wait to to get the high res and this is what uh the mary Emma's picture library which is in you know, the main case study um in you know in parts of the book um this is what they did uh, even though they were independent they didn't have a lot of funding they had to do everything kind of you know um they had to really cut their what's they called cut their coat to suit their cloth or something uh, <laughs> um but they uh, they were able to do that because they had all this um the systems in place uh and then you know because i guess the thing is they like most picture libraries at that time, they found that the 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 president the bits that had been set by Getty and Corbis meant that people just expected that level of service, and you had to you had to have something like that to deliver. So you know that's one of the effects of the platformization was that um, they both created demand. I mean, they provided the digitized content, and then also created the demand for more digitized content. Um, and so that was maybe. You know, it's a really big thing that happened in the sort of early around 2000. Um, and then, of course, all this digitization work had to be done by somebody. Uh, and so large firms or platforms were able to, um, you know, do this in a kind of, in, in a kind of industrial capacity. And, um, you know, there were sort of digitizing plants set up um, that could kind of mass produce digitized copies uh and other people had to do it more in a sort of cottage industry way of, of just yeah uh, um doing it uh, as part of their uh daily work um and um that's really you know that work's still going on uh and so in the final chapter um i sort of contrast um to uh two approaches to this and then one is is one is from getty <laughs> um which in in i think oh, when was it 2011 um uh, they did a sort of um you know sort of self-promotory kind of uh, picture series of, of digitization and other kinds of picture library work going on in the getty archive um where, where you know professionals uh are engaged in digitizing historical pictures and and kind of you know both production and post-production and, and doing it using all the you know modern bells and whistles of digitization and then um the other example there is um 
the university museum of my university, which has to rely on uh, work to welfare people uh, or volunteers to digitize because they can't afford to pay people to do it. You know, they have to, um, so they end up having sort of three week um, stints, people coming in and then just learning how to do it and then leaving again. And then they have to, uh, so that's a completely different um uh, different kind of labor force and different kind of um, um, what's the word I want uh, workflow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that photo series from Getty that you describe and um, really analyzed was so fascinating to me because as you said, it is fairly promotional, but also looking at it from just an informational angle of seeing who they choose, what tasks they choose to depict in the process and how they depict those who is in the picture. Uh, I I thought that like your, your use of that as source material was really instructive for how we can look at different kinds of things to learn how labor is changing and how intermediaries are changing. Um, yeah. And, and I think also, you know, that there's a lot, you know, just, and I think that it kind of correlates, I mean, in the, in the, in chapter two, I also have this, again, this was a promotional picture uh, from a picture library in, in 1951 of showing off, you know, the staff at work in the picture library, kind of filing and looking at um, and, at paper prints. Um, and it shows how the work has changed, but that is still still skilled work going on, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's maybe also a bit sort of obscure work or sort of work that you, you, know, you wouldn't know about it unless unless you were told about it, unless you were doing it yourself. Um, but, you know, with kind of 60 years in between, they they still, um, uh, you know, um, found it worth, I wish, you know, we do, maybe we do it more now because they're so easy to do it. But I think, you know, on the whole, people document how they work too little. They should be doing it more. Definitely. Yeah. And it's interesting to think of an organization doing that documentation as opposed to individuals documenting their own work, which maybe yes, happens which I'm sure a little they do. More. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or they probably didn't do that that much in the 1950s. No. Because they, you know, I mean, they probably did do some snaps at, you know, office parties and stuff, but probably not that much. Um, but yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's also, I mean, another sort of another kind of work, of course, that came in um, that, you know, some of the people I interview talk about is is this work of um of tech support you know that uh, you know one of the people i interviewed said well you know when everything's digitized you don't need picture picture librarians anymore uh because it'll be like the telephone exchange you only need some people when something goes wrong so you only need you know some kind of tech support for when the download fails or whatever right um but of course that also you know other people found that we are but they can't necessarily help me uh, with what I need uh, because they can help me with the download pipe as it were but they may, they may not be able to help me um, find a picture that I maybe know is in the archive but isn't I can't find it online um, and those I mean I remember sort of this from my own experience I guess in the early 2000s when there was a, a sort of black hole in the in the holdings of particularly the sort of news agencies they had some really old archival stuff that they digitized and then of course they had everything that had been done since uh, press photography was digitized which was happened in the course of the 90s so a bit earlier than the rest of the stock photography business um i remember sort of phoning up to ask about stuff that that was from the 1980s like remember sort of um you know, demonstrations against um, apartheid in South Africa and that kind of stuff, they didn't have it because they hadn't digitized it. It wasn't interesting enough and it wasn't old enough for them to digitize it, but it wasn't new enough to be digital. So it was like, no, no, we don't have that. And I was like, well, obviously you do because you were a news agency in the 1980s. You must have done this. But, but, you know, for the purposes of the people who were at work, no, they didn't have it because they didn't know where to look in the archives for it. Um you know, they just knew how to kind of send the stuff that was already digitized. Yeah. Uh, so that was a different kind of, um, you know, that was sort of, I mean, I'm sure that's changed now. We probably caught up on digitizing. But uh, but that that's a, an example of how, you know, those kind of, where you got rid of some kind of, some, some sorts of staff, and then you replace them with people who had different skills, but there was then left a sort of gap where the old skills used to be and the new skills didn't cover yet anyway definitely yeah and i 
I mean, those decisions of like what what skills to continue valuing and what things to digitize. Um, I mean, they do feel a bit political, which leads me to the the next thing I wanted to ask you about, something you wrote in the introduction of your book. You noted that the digitization imperative appears both ahistorical and apolitical when it is, of course, a phenomenon tied to a particular historical moment and a particular kind of politics. I found that statement very thought-provoking, and I was wondering if you could highlight for listeners the kind of politics that you see influencing the shift in picture libraries towards this digitization imperative. And I'm thinking about how we might watch for those similar political influences broadly in, in fields of digitization and collection management. Yes, and I think that's probably, I probably had collection management more in mind when I wrote that than picture libraries, because for picture libraries, I guess it's, it's, um, it's political in the sense that it's economic, you know, imperative. You know, if you want to survive, you need to have stuff digitized. So that's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you can possibly got a political economy aspect of it. But really, um, the, 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 I think the political aspect really comes in, uh, in, in, times in terms of um collection management and you know museum collection and library collection management in particular uh, archives too um and i think again it's this thing that i mean what i talk about in the book when i i, I sort of coined this well, uh term um post digitization which i which i call you know this sort of expectation that everything is already digitized and if it hasn't been, then there's a, you know, there's a mistake and it should be digitized immediately. A bit like me, you know, moaning at this person um, in the early 2000s that they didn't have anything digitized from the 1980s, you know, like, well, it should be, get on it, you know? And that's, um, that attitude uh, is also held um, by politicians or people who make decisions that are political, uh, let's just say. Um, and, you know, thinking in particular about the place that I live um, in Norway is a very uh, is a country where there's a lot of um, kind of um, urban rural tension. Or you know, um, it's it's a country that is very much a sort of uh, the, the idea of democratization is very much bound up in people living where they want to live and not having to go into a town to do what they want to do and that sort of stuff. So, digitizing museum collections in order to enable people to sit wherever they like and have access to all the cultural heritage that they are paying for is very strong, right? So that's one example of, of how that digitization imperative works, that this is what the taxpayer should have because it's what they've been paying for. Um, and I think, uh, you know, an example from, uh, from academia would be something like art store. Uh, which you know was a, a sort of political, in a sense, response to uh, to the shift that was happening. That you know, art historians teaching courses realized well, we can't just be doing these slides anymore. Um, that's that's kind of going. That's clearly going the way of all flesh. We need to digitize collections, and rather than every single tiny college digitizing their own uh, slide library, maybe it would make sense for somebody to kind of do a big that has a big collection to, to sort of share their, their take, they take on the burden and kind of be the Getty images <laughs> or Corbis images of, um, of art history teaching and, uh, and provide that for everybody else. And then of course that generates pressure on others to either join that initi initiative and start using it or to create their own alternatives because it becomes, you know, an industry standard or, uh, you know, a general expect creates that expectation um, that then like it or not, you have to live up to if you're going to, um, if you're going to be keep going in that field, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that sure also... if that's what you were expecting me to say, but no, definitely. I mean, you're making me also think about, how that digitization imperative played out in the last few years while there was a pandemic and many of us could not get to our institutions to look at collections and there were a lot of conversations about well obviously digital is the most accessible obviously digital is like the way we should be learning to teach and i think that there are incredible 
access and education opportunities in digitization, but then that makes an assumption that other types of use, other types of access are not good at all. Um, and I don't, I don't think that we can make that black and white distinction. No, absolutely not. And, you know, I mean, my project sort of originates in, um, I guess at a moment, which we tend to call, talk about as the material turn in photography studies, which I think was a little bit spurred on by that early digitization imperative when you know it was, it was becoming accepted to just you know pictures were being digitized photographs were being digitized and that was fine and when and we could just see them online now and then a lot of people were saying well hang on there's a lot of the you know a, a printed photograph has a lot of qualities that don't come across on a screen um and that are worth that tell you something about that picture uh and so that sort of um, you know, a lot of people in photography studies in particular would say that, oh, no, digital is just is not not good. You know, that's not the 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 thing we should be aiming for. That's a really bad surrogate. <laughs> um, and uh, um, I think, you know, now it's probably more like we accept that it has lots of great uses, um, but maybe not those uses that we think maybe not necessarily you know, digitizing everything. I mean, one example is, you know, that we're now recording this using a platform that allows us to see each other as we're speaking. And I've seen a lot of uh, libraries recently offer, or archives also offering people to have, instead of coming to the library, if they need to see like, um, you know, a volume of a book, that's rare, a rare book of some sort. Let's say I needed to look at something that was in a US library. Um, and I hate traveling transatlantically i'm really scared of flying so it'd be great if i could you know if it was in your library i could get you to set up a zoom call and you could kind of flick through it for me and you can tell me and you can say you know okay wouldn't be able to smell it but i'd be able to see a lot and you'd be able to tell me a lot and i could ask you stuff while you were looking at it and so that sort of you know that kind of use of digital technology is not maybe what the sort of digitization projects have in mind and certainly not the digitization project managers have in mind but that might be really you know a very helpful and um uh, and you know i would say on low tech or slightly quite low cost version of a way of, of using these digital technologies um you know, in I guess in ways that we learned during the pandemic, because I think that's when it started. But people realized, oh, we can do that. Yeah, that's helpful. Rather than necessarily digitize this whole book, we can just the few people, let's face it, who actually need to see it. You know, they can we can probably fit in a Zoom call with them. Definitely, we can be more like creative and critical about how we use digital technology. Uh, because I think that's one of the things. One of my sort of mm, uh, gut feelings about digitization you know those large scale in particular publicly funded you know digitizing museum collection kind of thing is that nobody came to see this stuff before very few people still probably want to see it so is is it worth it you know uh, unless it can be done very much like in on the sort of rote basis that it's easier to do the whole batch rather than choose the few things to digitize then really what what is the point? You know, wouldn't it be better to to do something like, yeah, offer remote access, but kind of to the ones who actually want it? But then, you know, then you might say that, well, you wouldn't come across it if it wasn't browsable online. So there's, you know, yeah, this is, this is going to be, uh, and, you know, I'll probably be engaged in these kinds of discussions until I retire, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, enough to keep you busy. And, um, I, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I would actually love to hear what you're working on next. And if you have new projects that um, grow directly out of this book or other new things that you're working on. Yes, I do have a new project that that does in many ways grow out of this book in the sense that it's still about um, intermediaries. And it's sort of, I guess it, ha it was probably spurred on by um, by that first chapter, which is about the engravers um so i'm now looking at um and uh, at sort of the intermediaries involved in a photomechanical reproduction of pictures so i'm really interested in and again like coming back to this material turn the the actual object so the what i 
I'm now sort of thinking about as intermediary pictures. So um, the sort of the like the stereotype and what we call in Norwegian the cliche. Uh, so the half tone, like the actual physical half tone, rather than oh, I see this photograph reproduced in the newspaper is a half tone picture. Yeah, but like the actual printing plate thing that was made um, that enabled a photograph to be reproduced in print. Right. So those kinds of images uh, that were temporary, you know, they were never meant to be seen. They had a use. Um, and the reason we have dead metaphors like cliches and stereotypes now is because those um, objects had, there was a cost in producing them. And that's why people kept them and then used them up. And in fact, the word stock image comes from the same thing. It comes from the stock, the, the, the bit of board that those pictures were mounted on, the metal plates were mounted on. Uh, and, and they were then worn out, you know. Um, and that's sort of, so a uh, material history of the cliche is, is, my, <laughs> is my next project, probably the best term for it for the moment. It's very much at a starting point. Um, and I'm going to be focusing on uh, on the Scandinavian context for that. So all my source material is probably going to be, uh, my main source material is going to be um, from Scandinavia because there's been very little done on it as yet here. Um, there's been quite a bit done um in the UK and in North America, and I think also in France, but not so much here yet. Well, that sounds really neat. Um, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank um, you for this conversation. I hope, I hope, uh, you know, I hope what I've said isn't completely or too much at odds with what is actually in the book. <laughs> no, I feel like you gave a very, very beautiful um, representation of of all the research um, that you did and, and the way that you laid it out in this conversation really came across to me as um, as how you laid it in the book. So I hope listeners will, will also read the book. Um, and once again, my guest today is Nina Lager-Vesberg, author of Picture Research, available open access from MIT Press. And my name is Jen Hoyer and you're listening to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network.